Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 202, and it's a bonus episode. Just a little more material on that wacky place called The Cellar. No, you don't need to listen to this to gain a deeper understanding of the Kennedy assassination, but there was something about that place. There was something about the people that frequented that place, and there was something about Pat Kirkwood who drew them there. Pat Kirkwood was the owner. And there's a great story to tell. He was a man who knew how to party. And he was a man who knew how to throw a party. And he was a man who threw himself his own last party. You see, he was dying of cancer in the year 2000. And before he went, he asked everybody of consequence in those golden years that the cellar was in operation to come back together once again and spend some time with him and party one more night. And that's exactly what they did. And there's a story of it. And you're going to hear that story today. And how it all fits in, well, it's a little bit of the crazy underbelly of the underworld that those clubs operated in. Whether you were Pat Kirkwood or whether you were Jack Ruby, there was a little bit of this going on everywhere. Everywhere there was a club. So let's listen in and enjoy the rest of episode 202 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. There's another article that appeared in Texas Monthly in April 2000, and it actually was a tribute to Pat Kirkwood around the time of his death. It talks about one last party that Pat Kirkwood would throw. And I'm going to read it to you now. In the shadow of the brightest moon in a century, a steady stream of casually dressed older folks, a few with walkers and canes, shuffle into a suite at the Green Oaks Inn in Fort Worth. Drinks are drunk, cigarettes smoked, rituals of closure in the last hours of the party of their lives. Greeting guests is the evening's host. Pat Kirkwood, a lanky 72-year-old whose black suit, black shirt, black tie, and black alligator shoes are a startling contrast to his pale pink skin and snow-white ponytail and matching beard. If not for the odd phrase snatched from conversation, there is no remission, you wouldn't know he's dying. If he's going to go, he figured he may as well have one last fling with the friends and acquaintances who made his nightclub chain, the cellar, the coolest in Texas. And so they have come. All the old bouncers, the managers, the musicians, the waitresses, the lawyers. Tarrant County District Attorney Tim Curry phoned in regrets. He might have to run for re-election. 
and assorted hangers-on. A black-and-white film of the beach-based 1951 Daytona 500 plays on the television set in one room. Kirkwood, the only Texan in the race, vies for the lead until the sand jams his gearbox. Next door, on another TV, in a grainy color film shot in the early 60s by Jimmy Hill, then the manager of the Fort Worth Cellar, most of it was taken during the Artists and Models Ball on Halloween night in 1962. Kirkwood is visible in it too, as are several female dancers in various stages of undress. There's my ex-wife, Hill says with a chuckle. At a table in the corner, one-time moonshine smuggler Don Thunder Road Johnson plunks down next to Kirkwood and tells stories about flying around Texas on a four-day drunk, while Chuck Elf Bolding, who managed the cellar in Dallas but now supervises security guards at the Las Vegas Hilton, recalls the nights that an underage Stevie Ray Vaughan played the club. We had our own law, Bolding says, and... It was whatever Pat wanted. Hey, Pat, a voice shouts from the other room. What happened the night the guy shot another guy in the head and the guy who got shot went to jail? (laughs) Those were the days. The original cellar, a basement joint at the corner of 10th and Main Streets in downtown Fort Worth, was a beatnik coffee house, a trendy concept when it opened in 1959. By the time I was old enough to sneak out of the house, it had moved to a second-story walk-up three blocks from the Tarrant County Courthouse. And no matter what the menu said, it was no longer serving just coffee, if you know what I mean. There were cellars, too, in downtown Dallas on Commerce Street, across from the Cliff Building, in downtown Houston and Market Square, and briefly near the Riverwalk in San Antonio until officials of the area's five Air Force bases pressured it into closing. For as long as they were in business, last call in Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston was 1972, 1972, and 1973, respectively. The sellers defined nightlife. They functioned as all-purpose hangouts with a hint of biker bar, semi-legit walks on the wild side that were as edgy as it got in Texas in the swinging 60s. The clientele they attracted would be considered retro-hip today. Low-grade hoodlums left over from the Jacksboro Highway Dixie Mafia, off-duty cops, thanks-stained newspaper reporters, penny-ante hustlers and gamblers, and the occasional out-of-town celebrity, from tough guy actor Lee Marvin to astronaut Alan Shepard. To a fresh-faced 16-year-old looking for cheap thrills, no place was deliciously threatening or as sinfully inviting. Walk in and there was no turning back. You'd give your dollar to the ex-con working the register, slip into the smoky haze, and move instinctively toward the booming beats. Dark was a theme. The walls were painted black, except for the slogans. They were painted in white letters. Evil, spelled backwards, is live, or you must be weird to be here. The staff was dressed in black. The interior lighting was pretty much a single red bulb hanging from the ceiling. Customers sat on large pillows on the floor. At one end of the room was a bandstand from which music blared until dawn. And it was dawn. The cellar stayed open all night, winking at the law that said nightclubs had to close at midnight because, you know, no liquor, beer, or wine was served 
though I'd have sworn I was getting a buzz from the fake rum and coke brought by the waitress wearing only a bra and panties. At that point, the most exposed flesh I'd ever seen close up on a woman, other than my mother. I knew enough not to get too familiar. Behind every waitress was a bouncer, part of the burliest, surliest security crew enforcing the peace anywhere in Tarrant County. And he was eager to kick my skinny ass down the stairs if I gave him a reason. I wanted to stay because on some nights in the wee hours, a waitress might fling off her underwear in front of the bandstand, which back in those days was outside the law. My friends and I figured the owner really had some pull. <laughs> we had no idea. Among its other charms, the seller's all-night policy honed the chops of performers like Stevie, Dusty Hill of ZZ Top, guitar ace Bugs Henderson, a truly original street drummer and rapper named Cannibal Jones, who changed his name to Bongo Joe when he moved to San Antonio, John Denver and comedian George Carlin, who perfected his seven dirty words shtick at the Fort Worth Cellar. They had also burnished the legends of characters like music director Johnny Carroll, a cult rockabilly star back in the 50s, and cats named Tiger, Tootie, and Hatchet, as well as a Beatles cover band called The Cellar Dwellers. To keep the vibe going, Kirkwood laid down the law to his staff. All policemen, all reporters, all pretty girls, all musicians, all doctors, all lawyers, and all our personal friends come in free and get drinks free forever. Now and again, there were raids, but they were part of the show. Whenever the red light on the ceiling started flashing and the band shifted into the theme from the Mickey Mouse Club, it meant the cops were on their way. I always wondered if Kirkwood called him himself to keep customers entertained. He certainly was a self-promoter. To keep the seller in his own name in the news, he planned publicity stunts like the outdoor cookout at Trinity Park, at which his staff was going to roast geese near the duck pond. We had to get arrested to get in the paper, he says. I remember him as an exceedingly polite and pleasant fellow, though there was also a less forgiving side to him. For all the hardcore types who thought of the seller as a second home, he was clear about the kind of people he wanted around. No troublemakers, no queers, no pimps, no blacks. No narcotics, he says. Those were the rules. If you did anything else strange, you were welcome. Undesirables were discouraged by a sign posted at the door announcing a cover charge of $1,000. Most people were charged only a dollar. But whenever a black man walked up, the bouncer invoked the policy. An unfortunate echo of Jim Crow. I first reconnected with Kirkwood a year and a half ago in a trailer in the woods between Granbury and Glen Rose. It wasn't his place, he was quick to tell me. It belonged to a friend, an independent oil man. His eyes were hidden behind mirrored sunglasses, and he was dressed from head to toe in black. Gallabert's shirt, dungarees, pointy-toed sharkskin beetle boots. At first, I didn't notice the fancy hand-tooled silver-plated forty-five automatic pistol, resting on the table within his arm's reach. Papa always said, if you're going to marry a whore, it might as well be a pretty one, he said, flashing a sweet dimpled smile. 
pop was W.C. Pappy Kirkwood, who operated the 2222 Club, a notorious and wholly illicit gambling casino out of their house, a sprawling white stucco Spanish colonial mansion high on a bluff above the Jacksboro Highway. Its patrons were high rollers from all across Texas, wildcatters, poles, civic leaders. Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the U.S. House, liked to sneak away from bottom for a little excitement whenever he came home to visit his constituents. Pappy's wife, a trick rodeo rider named Faye Lieberman, often entertained her close friend Dick Kleberg. Kirkwood recalls his father discreetly closing the gates whenever Nanetta Burton Carter, the wife of Eamon Carter, the most powerful man in Fort Worth, hankered to play roulette with her friends. My daddy was a man of integrity, Kirkwood rasped, swelling with pride. He appointed police chiefs, all kinds of things like that, because nobody down there could trust anybody. They'd go to him, and he'd tell them the deal straight up. One time, Mayor F.E. Dean called Pop and said, By 9 o'clock this morning, I've got to appoint a new chief of police. Who should I appoint? He's asking a well-known gambler running a well-known gambling joint. Kirkwood bent over and laughed hard. Every year on Christmas Day, he continued, one of my chores was passing out gifts to cops. If they were harness bowls and wore regular uniforms, they got a bottle of whiskey. If they had stripes, corporals, sergeants, whatever, they got a turkey. If they had hardware, captains, for instance, they'd get a ham. There'd be 20 cars lined up. I'd be running in the house, taking things out back and forth. I thought it was hard, boring work. And then I got to thinking about it. Pop was introducing them to me. Boy, did that pay off a thousand times in the cellar days. Before burying him in 1983, Kirkwood slipped Pappy's favorite pair of dice into his pocket. He might run into a live one on the way, he reasoned. Kirkwood himself was a live one of a different sort, a witness to history, it turned out. I had come to see him to talk about the Kennedy assassination, and he obliged by recalling Jack Ruby as a Jewish wannabe hoodlum and speed freak who was, like all the other joint owners, from here to Casablanca. And he was a pest who came to the cellar on Saturday nights after his own place closed to hire away my waitresses. He then confirmed that Lee Harvey Oswald had washed dishes at the San Antonio cellar upon his return from Mexico during the middle two weeks of November 1963, which prompted him to conclude that there was no conspiracy. He would say, the mob is going to strand their hitman on the border, penniless, on the verge of doing his hit? I don't think so. Here's a guy who killed the president so that everyone would know he existed. It was the dawn of the celebrity age. That's really about all there is to Oswald. He went into great detail about the circumstances that led 17 off-duty Secret Service agents to drink at the Fort Worth cellar until as late as 5.30 on the morning of November 22nd. The record remains unclear as to whether any of the president's protective detail had hangovers on that fateful day, because after two weeks' worth of interrogation, Kirkwood finally sent the Secret Service away, convinced that the club only served alcohol-flavored drinks, not the real thing. He neglected to tell them about the alcoholic specials given away to VIPs. 
We talked of other things, too, like his unsuccessful campaign for sheriff in Tarrant County in 1982. He vowed to personally call on every criminal in Fort Worth and suggest they relocate to Dallas. And more recent escapades that were no less weird. By his own estimate, Kirkwood was involved in as many as 91 dope deals between 1988 and in 1995, piloting small planes from Mexico to the U.S. on 29 missions, each time ratting out the smugglers to the feds. Just doing his part for a drug war, he explained. I was asked in every law enforcement office what my motives were, he said. Well, I replied it, it was a chance to take advantage of rewards offered by the government to be in Mexico and to utilize skills acquired over the years. One of those skills was flying. He'd been a student of the great American Airlines pilot, Stormy Mangum. Alas, his career as a double agent was relatively brief. After a series of runs for the FBI and U.S. Customs, he says, he was stiffed out of $4.2 million in fees and expenses he was promised for his services. A claim generally supported by Fort Worth Star-Telegram writer Mike Cochran, who sat in on dope deal discussions between Kirkwood and the feds. There's no honor anymore, Kirkwood says, spewing out the words with disgust. You can't take a man at his word. A source familiar with the back and forth has another theory. You can't go cowboying around and running up expenses without authorization. Whatever the case, Kirkwood could sure use the money. He's nearly broke. Medical bills are still piling up from his wife's kidney transplant last year. And he has considerable bills of his own. Last summer, he was diagnosed with acute adenocarcinoma, a type of lung cancer, and it has spread like wildfire. Doctors gave him a one in three chance of living two years. The best thing they can do, he said, is extend my existence. The last party at the Green Oaks reinforces that inevitability, just as it affirms the existence of an institutional memory. One look at the helicopter flyboys, hot mamas, and vaguely recalled figures of all types in attendance, and I realize what an exceptionally wild bunch the regulars were. And they are paying for it, judging by the bloated faces, cautious steps, endless talk of strokes and heart attacks, and old friends referenced in the past tense. There were also priceless encounters, such as the one involving two musicians who were reintroduced after many years. The first one shook hands genially with the second. But when the second was out of earshot, the first turned to me and said, that some bitch stole my amp. And if it wasn't for Hatchet, I'd have killed him. <laughs> Fortunately, bygones are bygones. Anyway, the amp thief is too emaciated to beat up now. At around midnight, Arville Strickland, an unsung Fort Worth guitarist who had set up a website dedicated to cellar lore, puts a CD on a boombox for mood music. It was the Cellar Tapes, Volume 1, and it featured tracks culled from recordings made at the nightclub's Cowtown location. Some blues, some rock, Johnny Carroll jumping in, some dancing girls, and the old shuffle, and you've got a buzz, and it's too dark to see who. But they're playing that jazz, and it's getting late, Strickland says. The music fills in the blanks, and the room comes alive. The smoke, the red light, nightlife as it was meant to be. It all comes back, accompanied by belly laughs 
and shrill shrieks. Sometime after, with wild stories swirling in the air, a former bouncer who looks every bit of 400 pounds in his giant overalls falls from his chair and passes out briefly, signaling my own last call. We have got to have one more next year, Kirkwood says as I exit, positively beaming from having the time of his life and a few glasses of whiskey. And if I'm not there, go ahead and start without me. Well, thank goodness for the Texas Monthly for preserving that piece of Americana. That was the real seller. And that was the real Pat Kirkwood. Thank you for listening to bonus episode 202 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.